welcome to your stories podcast where we hear candid stories from people conquering cancer i'm your host dr don dizon and i'm happy to welcome my fellow co-host and friend dr mark lewis to the podcast today dr lewis specializes in hematology and oncology but at the heart of his work is patient doctor communication he is interested in young onset cancers and hereditary cancer syndromes because Dr. Lewis is also a patient. Before his episodes begin airing next month, I am just delighted to talk to my friend, Dr. Mark Lewis. Thank you so much, Don. It's, it's a real privilege to be able to speak to you. And I was thinking about my disclosures here. One of them is that you and I are friends. And I think that hopefully will come across in the conversation. And then secondly, you're someone who's communication skills I really admire. We'll talk today about how we're breaking down information barriers that have traditionally separated oncologists from patients. And I think you in particular have embraced new media as methods of doing so. So to to be able to talk to you about this is a real thrill. That's great. And the feeling is entirely mutual. I think we actually first met on Twitter. We did. And it it developed from there. So getting to it, before we get into your work as a doctor, Mark, you have a rare cancer syndrome that's called multiple endocrine neoplasia type 1 or MEN1. Like one of the questions that certainly I've thought about, especially with how open you've been, how did that affect you when you were first diagnosed and how does it continue to affect you? Yeah, thank you for asking, Don. I mean, it, obviously, it's affected me physically. I think it's also affected me professionally. So I, I reached my diagnosis the very first day of my oncology training. And so necessarily, I've seen my entire career through this sort of dual lens, being a patient and a physician. And because I was diagnosed in fellowship, of course, I went immediately to my program directors, you know, thinking that this was going to be a liability or that in some way I would be penalized. And, and, and in fact, quite the opposite. It allowed me to you know, go through my, my training, trying to hone a sense of empathy. And then the other thing that was really amazing about about being open to my, my colleagues and particularly my faculty, as many of them confided in me that they had cancer too. And I've actually been working on a kind of a pet hypothesis. I don't have a whole lot of evidence for this, but I suspect that compared to other specialties, we as oncologists are, are maybe more likely to experience cancer ourselves. And it's not because of occupational exposure. It's because so many of us are drawn to the field mm-hmm. through our families. And thus incur a, a slightly higher um, hereditary risk, I suspect, in the general population. So I've never proven it. But just I can tell you the number of people over the years that have come to me and, and largely uh, in, in private told me about their own illness has really been striking. And then the fact that these conversations have been largely private has shown me that there is still stigma um, to admitting that you have a chronic illness, uh, certainly to admitting that you have a hereditary syndrome. And and, and frankly, it's because of that stigma that I, I realize I'm in a very privileged position to disclose mm-hmm. uh, what's wrong with me. And many, many of my colleagues and, and certainly m- many more of my patients are not in a position where they're able to disclose that they've had cancer, that they have a genetic disorder. And I am one of the lucky ones. I know it sounds almost disingenuous to say that, but I'm one of the lucky ones that gets out a platform. And, and I take that very seriously. And, and I, I look at it as a, a responsibility. It's very striking to hear this almost running towards something that you experienced. I naively thought if I did this, 
that no one would get cancer. And I, and I have been exceptionally proven wrong. It's so difficult to be completely insulated from this disease, you know, even in a time where, you know, if you're privileged enough, you can really expend a lot of your time and resources on, on your own health and on your own lifestyle and mm-hmm. risk mitigation, but unfortunately never really complete prevention or safety. One of the reasons cancer, I think, is so emotionally resonant to the general public is it has touched nearly every family at one time or another, uh, yeah. which, of course, infuses our work with, with, with great meaning. Yeah, 1,000% agreed with you. Um, you mentioned also, uh, just in, in the start, that you came to your diagnosis in your first year of fellowship. Yeah. What was that like? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, one of the reasons I empathize with patients, I was accused of being a hypochondriac. And, and in <laughs> hindsight, I don't, I don't blame the poor internist that was assigned to me at Mayo Clinic because <laughs> I came to him, you know, my first week of fellowship saying, I think I have a hereditary you know, tumor syndrome. And he said, what are you specializing in? I said, oncology, you know, <laughs> and uh, it's, <laughs> it's understandable that, you know, that might've been mistaken for paranoia. So very briefly, you know, what drew me to the field in the first place is I lost my father to cancer when I was, was 14. It was sort of the perfect cauldron of that grief and my adolescent angst. This was the mid nineties, you know, grunge was the trendy music and, and really, and it sounds you know, almost immature and childish now, but I sort of pictured, you were talking about you know, being insulated from cancer. I sort of viewed cancer as this amorphous enemy that I was going to tackle quite naively, of course. But the, the beautiful part of the process was my father's oncologist realized I had this interest and took me under his wing. And I got to work in his practice every summer during high school and college. So I got to work in his clinic and you know, I started as a medical assistant. I was a radiology tech. But the most important thing I did in terms of my development was just follow him, shadow him. And I would watch him interact with patients in a manner that was just so meaningful and rich. And so this was the era of paper charts. And he literally in the margins had all this detail about the patient that had nothing to do with their stage or their treatment history. It was all about them. And so he would walk into the room and very authentically, you know, ask them about, you know, their personal identity. And it was, it was mm-hmm. such an um, insight into the field as a, a human endeavor. And I found that very, very appealing. And then when I got into medical school, I already knew I wanted to do oncology told us first year, you know, because as you know, you go through all the rotations and they, they quite deliberately make you sample everything. They told us that short of psychiatry, oncology would allow you to have the deepest relationships with your patients. Now, the longevity of those relationships, as you know, is sometimes all too brief. But, you know, my, my personal experience has been, I have these kinships with my patients, ideally over years that are extremely meaningful and, and deep. Mm. And so w- with all that said, and I finally got to fellowship and day one, I had abdominal pain and, you know, self-diagnosis is tricky because at first I thought it was appendicitis. It was sort of localizing to my right lower quadrant, but then I had um, x-rays and it was ileus. It was a, a, a bowel that wasn't moving and I had a very high calcium level. Mm. And I've often said, Don, it's, it's like um, when you look at the stars and all of a sudden a constellation pops out at you, um, it was a pattern. And, and I, I recognized finally that there must have been a link between what happened to my father, what was happening to me, and then what had happened to my father's father, my paternal grandfather. So both men had died at young ages of sort of mysterious tumors in their chest. 
Mm. And no one could ever explain it. You know, with my dad, there was some sort of hand-waving about secondhand smoke exposure. It was described as an atypical lung cancer. You know, he actually went to his grave, and this is one of the things that really bothers me, thinking, oh, gosh, I could have done something differently. Sure. Um, but he had suffered from high calcium, and it had never really been, I think, thoroughly worked up. He had bone metastasis, and so I sort of wonder if people just assume that's where the high calcium is coming from. But actually, his high calcium level had bothered him his entire adulthood. And wow. when I developed high calcium too, you know, I had been through enough medical training at that point to know there's only maybe a handful of conditions that would explain consecutive generations of high calcium. And one of them you've already mentioned is multiple endocrine neoplasia type one. And that's why mm-hmm. I had this sort of eureka moment. I'm just like, I know I'm an oncology fellow. I know I've probably read just enough to be dangerous, but I really think I have this. And then finally, I would say, I was extremely fortunate because when I went to my doctor and again, initially encountered some skepticism, I was able to leverage what I might call professional courtesy and say, Hey, listen, you really have to take me seriously. I, Mm -hmm. you know, I I can't order these tests on myself. I need your help with the workup. And I I can well imagine other patients, you know, they don't have that feeling of being on a somewhat level playing field with their, with their position. And in fact, in my field, which is neuroendocrine tumors, the type of tumors I've dealt with personally, there is on average a seven year gap between onset of symptoms and correct diagnosis. When you talk to patients, the the narrative over and over and over again is the wrong diagnosis, Mm -hmm. um, ignored diagnoses. uh, And and that unfortunately cultivates some mistrust uh, Mm -hmm. in our, in our profession that Mm -hmm. frankly, I feel it's important to try to reestablish. Which I think is, it's probably one of the things that I think about with social media you just don't know who's going to be hearing your story and learning something really important for themselves without right. ever having met us. And I think right. you putting your story out there was just so admirable that way because you do what I try to do on social media as well. I try to make cancer not scary. Now, I'll be honest. Often what I'm trying to do is not you know advertise something I've discovered, but rather signpost to things that are reliable and right. that I consider meaningful, the mm-hmm. field is is brimming with hope. And, and the line that we're walking is the, the very careful distinction between hope and hype. Uh, but again, being honest with patients about what cancer actually entails. I applaud you because I think you have used platforms that some of our colleagues would say, oh, or you know, frivolous or you know, borderline unprofessional because you're, you're striving so much to connect Mm-hmm. with patients. And, and I, I really, really admire that about you. Let's just talk a little bit about your, you're also a parent. Yeah. And having been a son who lost his dad to this condition, what is it like when you look at your kids and what have you told them and how are you going to approach the issue of this, this syndrome yeah. that is familial? thing about me is I'm, I'm part of a dual physician couple. My wife is a pediatrician. <laughs> and as we discussed before the recording started, she is uh, conspicuously absent from social media because she <laughs> says I tweet enough for the both of us, which is almost certainly true. But um, I, I bring her up because she's an absolute, just an absolutely wonderful partner. And of course, is an expert in childcare. And so we did talk um, early on about, mm-hmm. well, well, first of all, let me step back and say, even the decision to have children when you know you carry a genetic condition is, is obviously freighted with mm-hmm. um, a lot of different concerns. And um, between when my daughter was born and when I discovered I had ME1, 
there were new technologies that came along, uh, one of which is pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. So essentially, in vitro fertilization plus some very, very fancy testing. So you select the embryos that, quote unquote, are not defective. Mm-hmm. And for a host of reasons, including cost and, and frankly, just our own feeling about the matter, we, we decided not to do that. And so we knew yeah. going into to trying to have our second child, there was a 50-50 chance, a, literally a coin flip that we would pass on, I would pass on this autosomal dominant inheritance. And to be very honest with you, Don, to an almost philosophical degree, it it gave me an existential crisis because I I thought if my parents had used this technology to conceive me, I wouldn't exist. And and that was a really kind of bizarre, almost kind of science fiction conceit. to. to And now we are all living with the consequence of that decision. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Oh, man, yeah. Twitter, Twitter is the worst place for it. So again, we, we knew yeah. that there was a risk. We frankly felt that MEN1, while don't get me wrong, a horrible illness, still allows you to have quality of life. And, and one of the, the key things about the syndrome is the reason it gets transmitted is almost all of us survive into our 30s and 40s and to be old Isn't enough. That remarkable? That's a remarkable thought. So yeah. to, to really answer your question, we've been nothing but transparent with my son. And we yeah. sort of felt like, if it, I hate the phrase new normal. But we felt like if we, if he knew growing up that he had this, then rather than walking into the buzzsaw of illness that affected his grandfather and his great-grandfather, men that he's never going to know, um, and, and even unlike me, he'll have the advantage of, of foresight. And again, the disease is not necessarily a death sentence. It's almost certain he's going to develop the same hyperparathyroidism and calcium issues that I've had to contend with. But everything else about the disease, interestingly enough, varies from person to person. So there is no, and you'll know this phrase, there's no genotype-phenotype correlation, meaning you can't look at one mutation and say, okay, well, this is what someone's life is going to look like. Right. And in some ways, that lack of predictability is a little bit scary, but the flip side of the coin is, and I've told him this many times, it's like, listen, what's happened to me, what happened to your uh, other relatives, Mm -hmm. isn't necessarily going to happen to you. So he's 10 now. His care is built into his his normal Mm -hmm. health maintenance. He actually really likes going in an MRI machine. They give him sort of a, I think a bubblegum flavored laughing gas to uh, <laughs> sort of make him still. And he actually really enjoys it. He actually asked me the other day, he's like, when am I going back for the bubblegum test? <laughs> and it took me a minute to realize what he was talking about. Um, uh, but no, honestly, the fact that he's growing up with this foreknowledge, I, I think actually is healthy. And, and there's other people who have told me, oh, no, no, no. You should have waited till he was an adult and then told him or given him the choice to know. And parenting is... You never know exactly how well you've done in the moment. But I personally feel like I was blindsided. I know my relatives had had no clue what was happening to them. And so I guess that's why I felt I'll err on the side of over-informing them. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you've mentioned this concept of PGD, pre-implantation genetic mm-hmm. diagnosis. When I've spoken about it to young women with a BRCA mutation, for example, mm-hmm. said you can still have kids and da 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 it's not this, you know, widely embraced, thank God, it's available. It is filled with a lot of um, thoughts about what does it mean to, for an embryo to be defective? Because right. genes, and, and, you know? and, and it pretty quickly, you know, ushers in the specter of eugenics, right? Yes. Um, yeah. Which is not, not a field of the proud history. And, and don't get me wrong, there are certainly conditions where I, I can well understand why and prospective parents would, would consider doing it. I'm not in any way morally judging 
everybody yeah. who's weighing the pros and the cons. I know you're not either, mm -hmm. but you're right. Even when you know you have a germline condition and someone tells you about this, it's rare that someone just embraces it with you know unfettered enthusiasm. Right. Um, that and I think that was the point to make. Really, I'm glad you spoke about that. That I think it's it's this fascinating ethical area without a right answer, but it really lends itself to you know personal choice. Really, yeah, exactly, exactly. And speaking of personal choice, <laughs> what what do you disclose to your patients? And and on the flip side. How many people who you see are aware of your personal story before you even walked in the door? So I am in the middle of an absolutely gorgeous feedback loop right now. So <laughs> in the information age, and especially because the, the tumors I deal with are traditionally a little bit rarer, mm -hmm. and because of this sort of struggle with self-diagnosis that I mentioned earlier, which is you know across the board encountered by almost every patient with neuroendocrine tumors. I am sought out by, by patients mm. uh, because they think, quote, oh, he gets it. Now, mm. I, I also very quick to tell them, listen, I've had multiple surgeries for this. I have not yet required anything systemic. I've not required chemo. I've not required you know, immunotherapy or radiation. Um, I may need all of these things one day. Right now, I don't. So I, I'm, I'm very quick to tell them that I cannot empathize with anyone that's requiring those modalities. Mm. On the other hand, what happens is they'll often like Google you know, neuroendocrine tumors, and somewhere in the results, my name will come up um, because I've been, you know, disclosing my own nets for, for years now. Mm -hmm. And so they basically will self-refer. So I'm a gastrointestinal oncologist. My entire practice at this point is solid tumors of the gut and accessory organs. So probably about half my practice, if I'm honest, is colon and rect uh, rectal cancer, just by prevalence. And then there's a fair amount of you know, traditional pancreatic adenocarcinoma, in gastric and esophageal. But then I would say at this point, about a quarter of my practice is neuroendocrine tumors, which is mm. you know, proportionally speaking, a very high fraction. And again, it, it is so wonderful for the most part to be taking care of patients that feel like mm. my, my kindred. And on mm. the other hand, I have to tell you, I'm in the process of writing about this as catharsis, which I know you do as well. I, I had a patient, I won't reveal any of her personal details, but she had um, MEN1 as well. And we were only a couple of days apart in age. And she would joke that we were, we were twins. And, and she died in January, very, very suddenly with extremely aggressive disease. And, and I have to be honest with you, I, I always try to emotionally firewall my work for my personal life. But she was so like me that it really, really deeply wounded me. And, you know, I, I still grieve her loss. And so my, my point is, is that it, it's kind of neat to look into the looking glass and, and see patients like me and, and see for the most part they're thriving that, that that's the, the positive takeaway on the other hand you know I was looking at this reflection of myself and it became a, a very black mirror it became a very grave outcome so that part has been a little bit challenging to negotiate but to really answer your question because patients are so self-advocating and because they have all this information at their fingertips now the vast majority of them come to me knowing that I have dealt with neuroendocrine tumors and I have ME1 and, and I seldom, I will seldom mention it to someone that doesn't ask about it because I do not want the visits to be about me or for me to be, you know, pretending like I understand what these people are necessarily going through. But um, I find these days, most of my new referrals in that particular tumor type are driven by an interest to see someone uh, who's been personally affected by it. That's, I think that's, you know, probably the best compliment I've ever received as an oncologist is, 
is to be told by a patient, thank you for understanding. Yeah. I'm just going to go back to something you had mentioned about this patient of yours who died in earlier this year. Certainly, I am also not immune to that kind of loss. You do get exceptionally close to people. And perhaps the hardest situations to survive are the ones where the loss was unexpected or it just happened so quickly. So I've answered this question myself about boundaries and borders just to preserve my longevity in the field, knowing there is a line that if I cross it, I will be emotionally devastated. Yeah. So for me, it is about funerals. And I don't go to funerals because that is my line. I find it's important for me to say goodbye or to to say my peace before the person dies and yeah. to get that closure before before they die. And and I don't go further than that. But how do you approach funerals? Yeah, well, it's interesting because I think you and I practice very, very similarly, obviously, in, in different domains. But I actually did, at least pre-COVID, attend a lot of funerals. And I'll tell you why. It's because my father's oncologist came to his. And I, I think that made such an impression on me and my family that I thought, wow, you know, this guy, you know, my father was not just a, you know, a way of generating revenue for him. He, he was really a person who's lost he mourns. And, and I actually really admire your approach, too. I think that's a really beautiful that you do that while the, the person is, is still with us. I will say, I think the other reason I do it, Don, is I have really struggled with the disconnect between someone being in my practice regularly and then going on hospice mm-hmm. and me seldom being able to see them again. And again, pre-COVID, it was not uncommon that I would do a house call, mm-hmm. again, for, for no other reason than really a social visit and to see that person when they were on hospice care. Because I think you'll find, and you know this, that a, a lot of patients say, well, gosh, you know, I'm so used to seeing you as mm-hmm. really my de facto primary care doctor during the um, cancer care. And then all of a sudden, you know, our relationship was abruptly terminated. And now I'm under the care of usually very wonderful physicians, Mm -hmm. but the hospice medical director, I don't see you anymore. And so I think probably the other reason I I used to go to funerals is to reestablish contact with the family, let them know that Mm -hmm. it was not being, you know, cutting them off, so to speak. It was just frankly arranging the care for the patient that I thought was most appropriate once I had exhausted my ability to help them. Um, Mm -hmm. So I I think that's a, a problem in oncology that we are still negotiating. How do we quote unquote, hand off the patient at the end of life without mm-hmm. feeling like we're just, you know, sort of jettisoning them and saying, okay, we're done with you. Because again, it is such a long and emotional mm-hmm. relationship. Those listening to understand that as professionals, we create our own way of doing this work and that there's not a sole way right. to right. say goodbye and there's not a sole way to manage grief when our patients don't survive but somehow i think you'd agree you have to learn your way to do that you were so right down and, and frankly I, I i don't know about you i got precious little training on how to do mm-hmm. this i'm going to change the subject just a little bit because there is a tweet that you posted and it was uh that virtue doesn't guarantee health yeah and you wrote that about your dad I who did. Had died of cancer yep. Tell me a little bit about how he continues to inspire you and what that tweet, how it informs your yeah. approach to oncology. 
One of the things I really try to unburden my patients of is shame. And again, I, I can't help but be informed here by what happened to my, my father. So my father was 42 when he was diagnosed. It was the ultimate incidental OMA, meaning something that was found uh, during another investigation. So we were moving to the United States. He got a chest X-ray to make sure he didn't have tuberculosis. And it didn't show TB, but it showed this huge mass in his chest. And again, it was described to him rather uh, imprecisely as an atypical form of lung cancer. And, you know, my father was not one to stigmatize, but then he started wondering, well, gosh, did this, like I said earlier, did it happen through secondhand smoke exposure? And, and he lived with that. I mean, he died with that, that thought that there was something avoidable in his, in his life and his environment and his exposures. And in fact, it was always in the genes. And so my, my favorite answer, even though it's a slightly evasive one, you know, and I'm sure this happens to you too, patients come and they say, doc, why, why did this happen to me? And I actually take the answer from Siddhartha Mukherjee, who, mm-hmm. I've often described as the poet laureate of our field. He wrote the Emperor of All Maladies, which is you know the definitive history of our field. And then he also wrote the gene. And, and in the gene in particular, he spells out this formula where he says, you know, all of these things that are happening to us are the sum of our heredity, so what we inherit, our environment, our exposures, and then the last one, and this is the this is the key, chance. And I see people undervalue, underestimate so much. That last one, it, it really translates as bad luck. Um, if you want to get fancy, you know, Shakespeare called it the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. It just means that there's only so many things that are under our control. And also, it is extremely difficult, as you know, to look at any one case of cancer and know absolutely for certain, okay, I, I know why this person got this tumor. And lung cancer actually is the perfect example, because now we know that 15% of lung cancer happens in non-smokers, and yet we still struggle to decouple smoking and, and lung cancer. And, and as a result, lung cancer patients for many years, and probably still now, I would argue, have suffered from this notion, oh, you, you did something, deserve this. And, um, and nobody deserves cancer. And, and so the reason I tweeted that, Don, about virtue is Twitter's a very interesting place. To their credit, there are a lot of people on there promoting extremely healthy practices or things that they perceive as important to their lifestyle and their fitness. And, and I applaud that. But that is not, and you talked about insulation earlier, it's so interesting, that is not a foolproof plan against you having to, you know, deal with malignancy. It's just not. Like, it, it to, to some extent, there, there is random chance. There's these stochastic events that happen as our cells divide, and we copy DNA, and there's mistakes happening all the time, no matter how healthy or virtu- virtuous you are. So the reason I use the word virtue is I do not like moralizing malignancy. And, and, you know, again, with lung cancer and actually had a conversation earlier with someone about hepatocellular cancer, which is in my field, you know, hepatocellular cancer is far too often been linked to, oh, you must have drank too much or you've been promiscuous and you've acquired hepatitis. Like, you know, no one deserves any of these things. And and yet we really, really struggle uh, to unbraid this notion that cancer is somehow related to you know, misbehavior or sin. And, and that's, again, where I invoke my father. He was a theologian. He was a minister. And so for him, like the, the notion of disease was actually pretty intricately tied to his concepts of, of fate. And we're Protestant and, and we do believe in being forgiven. But to some extent, I think he wondered, you know, why why is this happening to me? The other thing he wrote in his book, so he, he wrote a book before he passed that I thought was so beautiful, is he turned that phrase on his head and he said, why not me? Because you know, again, being a, a man of faith, people are like, oh my gosh, this is so unfair. You know, 
you, you devoted your life and your scholarship to God, like, why would you be punished like this? And he flipped it on its head and said, well, you know, I'm not exempt and neither is anyone else. So he, he inspires me because although he didn't know medically what was wrong with him, he really uh, dealt with his disease with a whole lot of grace. And, and his favorite quote of mine, which I've also tweeted and continues to inspire me, is he said, um, crisis, and here him and cancer, um, affords us the opportunity now, however brief or lengthy, to discard the trivial and the shallow and to fill every moment and relationship with meaning, intensity, and value. I do completely agree with you about this work that I think I, we as oncologists need to embrace, and it's to get rid of the stigma and the shame. And I do think it's the natural tendency of people discussing cancer with someone who's just diagnosed yes. is the need to feel protected. Yeah. What is it that you did wrong so I don't do it? You know, that, that, is, so, that is absolutely the subtext. And, and it's, so, it's so rarely acknowledged, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and also, I'll say, I know people mean well. One other part of this, I think, is that it's natural to want to nourish like literally nourish your loved one and your friend. And, and so there's a whole aspect here vis-a-vis diet. And I can tell you as a gastrointestinal oncologist, and, and this literally happened to me the other day, I had a young woman in my, cancer, in my clinic with, with colon cancer, and she had been told the reason this happened to her, she didn't eat enough vegetables. Um, and I just, I found that so, so heartbreaking you know, and again, I, I don't even fully understand her oncogenesis, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't, you know, a deficiency of broccoli. And, and yet people feel compelled to say that, you know, post-diagnosis, not encouraging healthy lifestyle eating in general, but telling someone who has already developed a pretty advanced malignancy that this is why this happened to you is just so presumptuous and wrong. Yeah. And there's uh, nothing to be gained by that. <laughs> there's absolutely nothing to be gained by that. It's reminiscent of these women with metastatic breast cancer because they didn't give up cake. I'm like, I can assure you <laughs> the cake wasn't the reason the cancer came back. And I think if there's anything that people should take away from this, it's to understand you can do everything the books tell you to. You can, you know, exercise three hours a day and never eat sugar, only stick to a vegan diet. And I can still see you in my office with a breast cancer. You know, one of the words I struggle with in cancer research is prevention. Everything else really is about risk mitigation and risk reduction. So Mark, you are one of several colleagues who have that unique viewpoint, having, you know, being a patient yeah. and being a practicing oncologist. What would you hope patients understood about oncologists? I think the sort of generic image of the oncologist or of us as an abstraction is, is these scientists, uh, you know, kind of cold-hearted experimentalists. Even now, when I try to put someone in a clinical trial, occasionally I get, doc, you're making me a guinea pig. And I'm like, well, no, actually, you know, focused research, you know, short of blind luck is the only way forward. It's the only way to make any of this better. And so I, I guess the other thing I'd like to do is, and, and you and I are involved deeply in oncology research, is, is demystify that process a little bit. Uh, make it understood that sometimes your best option is a clinical trial and not our current uh, treatments. You know, to our colleagues, I would say that we have done ourselves a little bit of a disservice accepting endpoints that are not meaningful to patients. What matters to patients is overall survival and quality of life. 
And uh, on the latter, and I've tweeted this too, Don, my, maybe my least favorite phrase in oncology is manageable toxicity. Because almost every time I encounter that phrase, it is someone performing sort of verbal sleight of hand around actually pretty awful side effects that, you know, we've, we've come up with this parlance that it's manageable. Yeah. Okay, it's manageable. Would you want these things to happen to you or your loved ones? And the answer is almost always no. Yeah, um, if you can you sort of think that it becomes unmanageable when I have to hospitalize it. We are trying to make them better. And what I mean by better is live longer and with preserved or improved quality of life. That's mm-hmm. ultimately what we're trying to do. Unfortunately, quality of life has been something that's been pretty difficult for us to capture, especially when we try to do retrospective analyses. But I think we are really, really working on that now authentically going forward. Yeah, it's it's always been so interesting to reduce quality of life to a percentage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I was like, wow, all of that in a number, just one number. You know, and I do agree with you as well. I think we are trying to provide more depth to yeah. what we mean by that. So I think you're you're absolutely on, on point with that. And, and, and again, Don, you're one of the leading experts about sexual health in oncology. Mm-hmm. And goodness gracious, I don't know if anything gets less discussed <laughs> in clinic than that. Um, so again, I, I admire what you're doing and, and mm-hmm. recognizing that you know just because you become a patient doesn't mean you lose your identity as a person or you know have to abdicate your relationships. Far from it. Your stance on universal genetic testing, tell me what your thoughts are about that. Uh, Let's say for people with cancer. Yes. And then let's say for people with a family history, for example. Okay. Um, So obviously we're talking at different levels there, right? So when people have a family history, I think that's a lot more compelling because your pre-test probability, the likelihood that you'll get a result that is meaningful is higher, Right. Um, I, I think where I struggle is this notion that we are ready now for larger scale and population level screenings, largely because, you know, the the operating characteristics of these tests are not perfect. And so here's what I'm getting at. And I think this extrapolates back to your original question. If you tell someone that you think that they have pancreas cancer and they don't, that is a bell you cannot unring. And there is enormous psychological harm that is irreversible, in my opinion, in, in telling someone that. Because then they're going to, their whole life, they're going to be waiting for the other shoe to drop. They're just going to wait for this pancreas cancer to materialize when it might never do so. Even someone affected with a germline defect. I struggle with the notion that we're ready for that degree of testing, just because I don't think the panels are perfect. They're not perfectly comprehensive. And even the, quote, positive signals aren't necessarily translating into disease. I think we have to be very thoughtful about how we do that. Yes. And I think it's until we achieve that sort of societal change of looking at cancer as either you live through it or you're going to die. And it's this dichotomous outcome unless we can change that. So tell me, Dr. Lewis, as a final question, what motivates you to conquer cancer? I would say I am so inspired by my patients themselves. What motivates me is the desire, as we've sort of said many times in this conversation, to help them live longer, but be less of a blunt instrument in the process. So right now, the hallmark of many of the treatments I give is I'm just going to flood the system with chemicals. They're going to kill the fastest growing cells they see. And I know we're going to look back on our field in years 
from now. And this is going to seem like such a primitive and crude way of doing it. So what I'm getting at is I am motivated to become more precise. And I realize precision oncology is a phrase that is, is kind of loaded. But what, what I mean by that is giving treatments that hopefully do not deprive, certainly not permanently, the patients of their quality of life and allow them to live longer. That is what motivates me. And even in my career, which is relatively short so far, and hopefully will be a lot longer, I, I've seen us you know, come closer to achieving that. I've seen paradigm shifts, immunotherapy, other targeted therapy is, I think, bringing us so much hope, legitimate hope that we can get away from these indiscriminate toxicities, uh, control or reduce whatever the, the tumor burden is, and allow these patients to live better and longer. I can't imagine a better place to end this. Thank you, Dr. Lewis, for joining us on the podcast today and sharing your story. Hearing the experiences of others can help people cope with the challenges cancer brings. Help others find these inspiring stories by leaving a review of the podcast and subscribe today on iTunes or Google Play to hear every new episode. Thank you for listening to Your Stories, Conquering Cancer. The participants of this podcast report no conflicts of interest relevant to this podcast. Full disclosures can be found on the episode page on conquer.org. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. This is not a substitute for professional medical care and is not intended for use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests on this podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy should not be construed as an ASCO endorsement.